This is MSCI Perspectives, bringing to light insights and analysis that help global investors tackle today's challenges. I'm your host, Adam Bass, and today is January 18th, 2024. Happy New Year, everyone. For the first episode of the year, I once again turn over the mic to MSCI's Chief Research Officer, Ashley Lester. Ashley recently sat down with a few key members of his team for what was, I have to say, a fascinating discussion that dove deep into the trends they feel will move markets as well as investors this year. So let's get right to it, and I'll see you on the other side. Hello, and welcome to the MSCI Perspectives podcast, the first for 2024, where we explore the most pressing issues facing investors around the world. I'm Ashley Lester. I'm the Chief Research Officer here at MSCI. And today I'm joined by a panel of MSCI experts who will share their insights and perspectives on the big picture for 2024. We'll cover a range of topics today, from the macro environment, interest rates and central banks, to AI and its implications for investors, private markets, climate and geopolitics. We will also discuss the implications and opportunities for global investors in this complex and dynamic landscape. Before we dive into the discussion, let me introduce our panelists. Today, we are joined by Rainer Oberoi from our solutions research team, who has led much of our research into the implications of geopolitical risk for investors. Asani Masturi, also from our solutions team, is a specialist in fixed income markets, especially credit. And finally, Oliver Marchand is the head of MSCI's Climate Risk Center and a prominent voice worldwide on climate change and the energy transition. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. Let's start with the macro environment. If we'd been having this discussion a year ago, I think we almost certainly would have been talking about the likelihood of recession in the major developed economies. Today, there seems to be increasing optimism that the worst may have been avoided. Asane, just to recap before we look forward to 2024, can you tell us briefly what happened in 2023 to the macro economy and how did we get to where we are now? Thank you so much, Ashley, for the opportunity. I like how you started the conversation comparing the beginning of 2024 with the beginning of 2023, where the expectation was that we are going to have a hard landing, the sharp increase in the interest rate, and also the shrink of the balance sheet of the central banks is inevitably would result in the uh, recession. And almost all of the economies, developed market economies, were expected to hit that direction. Fortunately, it didn't materialize. Even though it was a consensus, it didn't materialize. What we have seen last year is basically the revision of that view, of the review of the hard landing recession as a consequence of a hard landing. And now the consensus is uh, on basically a more soft landing. Looking at the developed market interest rate curves, what we see is that generally the level of the curves is higher. We see in U.S. Treasuries, for example, the high, the one of the kind of like a more of the steepening of the curve since last year, basically, with the underperformance of the five-year, ten-year area. These are the areas that previously going into last year they rallied on the expectations of the reverse of the monetary policy. They are now back to to pricing a more sticky inflation uncertainty about the the real level of the long-term inflation given the structural changes that we have seen in the last five, six years. And also the fact that if we have a soft landing, the demand for duration might not materialize. 
pretty much the same trend we see in the euro area curves, but the difference in the front end is more pronounced. As, as you know, and one of the, most of the audience would know that the inflation mechanism in euro area is different because of different factors, but one main factor is the aging population. So the rate curves have reversed the buy for duration. Looking at the spread curves now, we are, and actually um, the scenario for soft landing is even more pronounced there. When you look at the performance of high yield versus IG, we saw the outperformance of the high yield into the second half of the year. Now the spreads are back to the quite a normal situation in financials and non-financials corporate. They both are about 200 if you look at the MSCI indices. So we are in a in a quite a nice calm lull, if you want to say, in credit market, or is it how the credit market is pricing it? If you look at BTPs versus Boons, which is the pulse of the market for the crisis in euro area, we are back again to 1%, 1.5% in the range that it's a calm in the euro areas as well. So generally, the market, what is it pricing it? Is it nice? soft landing, no recession. This is supported by the uh, labor market statistics, but there is a big but here. So it sounds like much of this perhaps was supported by what some of my old colleagues in the macroeconomics profession have taken to calling an immaculate disinflation, right? A fall in the inflation rate without a corresponding increase in the unemployment rate, which is conventionally expected to happen. And so that's now reflected in these forward-looking measures that you're talking about, where credit markets are telling us that they don't expect elevated default rates, even in, even in riskier borrowers over the next 12 months or even longer. I want to come back briefly to some of the comments you were making about the difference between the short end and long end of the curve. I'd like you to really spell out some of those implications for our listeners, because I think you might have been touching on one of the big sort of emergent phenomena of last year, which was the re-emergence of what listeners may have heard called the term premium. Can you tell us a bit more about this mysterious thing called the term premium? Yeah, um, the term premium in general, in a, in a normal market environment, when what we expect to see in an interest rate curve, when the inflation trajectory is stable, we don't expect shocks in the economy in terms of the GDP side, real economy, and also the nominal side. What we expect to see in an interest rate curve is that the longer end, as you go further and far further in the term structure, you expect to see the yields are higher and higher because you're you are expecting a premium holding to somebody's credit longer, being a government or being an, a corporate. What we have seen um, since financial crisis and the consequences, monetary policy consequences of that, there were two trends that they resulted in the massive compression of the term premium. One was the deflationary pres pressures on, on most of the economy going into in your area. We had the circumstances that uh, we went to the austerity and then the, uh, the tightening of the fiscal policies and all of that, these are all quite deflationary. They were compressing the expectation for inflation in the future. In the US as well, despite the some more volatility inflation, the trajectory of inflation, partly because of global factors, were very stable or towards a lower kind of end of end of the spectrum, stayed very much for a long period, stayed close or under the Fed expectation. That was one factor. The other factor was that we had central banks that they were they embarked into the monetary expansion, i.e., buying different form of the uh, easing programs, buying into the bonds of the government bonds, 
uh, embarking in buying the in, independent of the kind of um, the, uh, the credit quality of the manure area specifically. So the central banks embarked on programs of the easing, buying the credit duration from the market, and that put pressure on the on the market in terms of duration. It means that the spreads started to tighten, and that was when the term premium tightened quite significantly. Uh, that phenomena is on the way to reverse, partly because the structural factor that they were supporting sub 2% inflation are debatable now. That's one factor. And the second is that when we are going back to the circumstances that inflation is slightly higher, if we don't really have a hard landing or recession and the central banks keep their size of balance sheet stable, and keep the rates not extraordinarily low as we have seen in the post-financial crisis, we expect to see the term premium to materialize. And just very briefly, for our investors in fixed income, obviously it makes a difference how large the term premium is. But what about for the rest of the world? Yeah. Any saver, any, any person who has got their money in pension, insurance companies, anybody who has liabilities in future or expectation for a cost or expenses in future, and they want to make sure that they're investing, they're investing in assets that they can have, uh, they can collect basically this time, this time premium, term premium over time. So it basically touches all of us in different aspects. Thank you, Osana. That's the perfect lead-in. So to my next question, which is to Reina, for whatever reason, fixed income investors love talking about macroeconomics and equity investors, Reina, tend to sort of spend less time or, or, or be less naturally equated with macro. These macro trends can have big effects on equity markets. So what happened in equity markets last year and to what extent can you trace some of that back to the macroeconomic and interest rate environment that Asane was describing? You know, I think we enter 2024 with cautious optimism. But I'm constantly asking ourselves this question, what just happened in 2023, right? I mean, global financial markets clearly defied the gloomy expectations of 2023. This widely anticipated global recession never came and the stocks rallied, assuming that the U.S. would get a soft landing. Now, that is clearly widely uh, priced in and investors are expecting that. The market is pricing in that. The MSCI Acme Index was up almost 23% in 2023 although led by um, you know, the Magnificent Seven, which are some of the uh, big tech names in the US. Now, one important point to note here is that in this whole backdrop, you know, we hear these names a lot. We hear the US big tech names drove the rally. We often forget the rest of the world. And you know, the equity rally actually uplifted many other regions too, but all were not the same. I, mean, I want to point out some European markets that bounced back with some of the larger economies like Germany and Italy recovering significantly by earning close to 24 and almost 40% in 2023. Now, the optimism about these aggressive interest rate cuts in 2023, actually to your point, um, you know, was front and center for emerging market countries too. And we see, um, you know, we saw emerging market countries also respond to this quite quickly. And but there was a slight difference here. There was a stark contrast within EM, with MSCI China being down more than 10%, while MSCI India gained more than 20% in 2023. Now, firms linked to artificial intelligence saw as investors were you know, really supportive of this technology. Again, 
you know, crowding metrics will tell you that everything linked to artificial intelligence is an untouchable. And there was yet another reason why quality as an investment thesis actually prevailed in 2023 and outperformed the broader market, reminding investors once again that quality is a premium that investors are not willing to compromise on. We'll come back to AI and the dominance of big tech, but I think your points about other markets are particularly interesting, perhaps really highlight the extent to which we might think that coming into this year, markets feel a bit like they're priced for perfection, where we've got, according to the MSCI macroeconomics model, we've got relatively high expected returns to uh, fixed income instruments priced in. That's obviously driven off the back of, of relatively high yields and some favorable roll down. But then equity markets have rallied so much on the back of that across a number of markets that equity markets compared to the last 20 years or so of their history, expected earnings for this year are probably a little bit lower than or, or towards the low end of the of the range that we've seen coming out of our macro model. The, it feels like the drivers for this year are going to be, did markets get it right in pricing for perfection or, or, the, or are there going to be some unexpected and material speed ups along the way? Absolutely, Ashley. And I think, you know, that ties in really nicely with what I want to highlight for equity markets specifically, uh, the risks and opportunities, what investors should look out for in 2024, what matters to equity investors. And, um, you know, some of it is expected, some of it is perhaps unpredictable. But, you know, let's start with the bad news, which are the risks that equity investors should care about. I like the number three. It's easy to understand, hopefully easy to remember for a lot of us. The first one is high levels of market concentration. The second one is really level setting on the optimism that equity investors have on a soft landing. And the last but not the least is really the unavoidable overhang of geopolitics and elections that really has the ability to disrupt any investment thesis. Now, market concentration has become a key risk that investors have to account for today. Now, if you look at the top 10 constituents of the MSCI ACQUI index, which is the old country world index, um, it's at about 18%, which is the highest since 1994. And yes, the US does have a big role to play here. Yes, market concentration is high, but this is really motivating investors to reassess their diversification and the allocation across countries, sectors, industries, themes, and we get into market concentration a little more uh, you know, as we discuss AI. But another challenge, um, you know, which I think is a little more pronounced by equity investors just because of the enthusiasm that comes with perhaps a soft landing, is that how confident are we that we have really averted a recession? And are some regions yet to play catch up with interest rates? We all know interest rates rose really sharply in 2023. But the economy, at least the U.S. economy, proved to be remarkably resilient. Now, one reason is that Americans are locked into lower rates. U.S. homeowners still pay, on average, a mortgage of 3.75%, which is shocking if you go out to the market today and try to get a new mortgage, which is actually double of that. Now, Europeans will actually be hit harder by the recent uh, rate hikes than Americans because they tend to have more of the floating mortgages and floating long-term loans. So one thing that as investors think about risk is that, you know, maybe Europe has already gone through the pain and the U.S. has yet to go through the pain. And what does that mean for portfolios? And then last but not the least is, you know, the geopolitical forces that will continue to be an overhang for investors 
when navigating macro uncertainty. But 2024, I think, is going to be key and historic when it comes to geopolitics. Now, the reason why I see that is 2024 is deemed to be the biggest year for democracy since 1800. Uh, more than 30 democracies, including the U.S. and India, are going to hold elections. And close to 50% of the global population is going to be at the polls in 2024. So while geopolitics tends to shape the investment landscape for the future, it can cause serious near-term volatility and uncertainty that cannot be ignored when managing portfolios in the current macro backdrop. The single biggest theme at the World Economic Forum in Davos has been that of rebuilding trust. Um, you know, majority of economists believe that this geopolitical fragmentation will actually accelerate this year, perhaps causing price shocks such as higher oil prices, inflated shipping costs, other trade disruptions. So for investors, it's becoming critical to conduct scenario analysis, think through the impact of all these different outcomes and what it can do to their portfolios. Um, I want to quickly touch on the opportunities of the sunny side as well. And I think here again, there are some of the three key areas I want to highlight. One is valuations cannot be ignored, suggesting value-oriented strategies are important. Sticking to quality as an investment thesis is key for investors. And capitalizing on smaller cap names to broaden equity exposure as these companies find tailwinds in this environment. Now, in our research, we've seen that the largest stocks in the market are crowded, which means many investors are chasing these same small company set of companies within a broad universe. Valuations were a key driver of some of the uh, you know, highly crowded names. And when you actually look at some of the larger cap names versus the smaller cap names, and you look at the crowding cost by valuation, you actually can see the larger cap names are more expensive than the smaller cap names to a greater degree than normal. And we're also seeing that present itself elsewhere. You know, investors today want to allocate to countries like India to capitalize on arbitrage. Brennan, if I could cut you off there, uh, that seems yeah. like a really interesting observation, right? And I think it relates to um, one of the big themes which we've mentioned in 2023, which is the emergence of AI. For some of us who have been around long enough, some of the stock market enthusiasm about AI might, might remind us of some of the stock market enthusiasm around the internet back in the late 90s. But I think this observation that you've made around the types of companies that seem to be benefiting in this wave of enthusiasm is very different from the types of companies that investors were backing back in the late 90s. Is that right? So actually, if you think about it, actually, um, you know, in 2023, we did see growth companies do well. And the growth companies were a function of the tech companies, right? But if you are thinking about 2024, that's where, you know, adjusting to valuations, considering valuations, seeing what is stretched is what is going to be important. So and I guess that's a distinction that I want to make. Right. And I guess what I'm highlighting is that you're saying that, you know, the, the greatest enthusiasm perhaps is for the largest companies. And we've seen this mm -hmm. unprecedented in 40 years level of concentration in market and stock markets. And so that's that the money is flowing towards big, high quality in the sense of highly profitable established companies. And so that makes this a very different wave of enthusiasm from the wave of enthusiasm in the late 90s, 
when you know the, the money was essentially backing any old chunk that managed to get a listing on the stock exchange. Right. Yes. No. I agree. I think there is that is an important distinction, but I think there is a similarity too that you could draw. Right. AI. If you think about it, uh, you know, twenty twenty three was excitement. Twenty twenty four is going to be execution. Twenty twenty four is going to be where investors actually make that distinction of what really benefits from AI versus what is loosely affiliated with AI. I think that's the distinction that investors need to make, and that's the distinction that some of the insights that we bring can help investors make that distinction. That's really interesting. But on that exact point, I, I think I want to bring Oliver into our conversation. Oliver, my question for you is, how do you see AI affecting your work on helping investors assess the effects of climate change? There's a little bit of a tendency for the following formula. Take AI and the new large language models plus uh, any problem that you see and, you know, portray it as a uh, potentially, you know, very promising solution. And I think we especially see that with climate. Experts uh, that I have talked to at COP28, the last UN climate change conference in Dubai in December, where AI and climate was a big topic, I think agreed on the following. The blockchain was a similar technology which proved to be practically completely useless for climate. To the contrary, what it did was it sparked, you know, the popularity of Bitcoin, which is a extremely emission intensive um, technology. Um, but AI and climate, I think everybody agrees that it does have a lot of potential in solving climate. Let me give you some examples. We definitely do need technological breakthroughs, especially in the energy sector, to solve the climate crisis and for decarbonization. And as any industrial process probably will benefit from the acceleration um, that AI provides, especially as mathematical reasoning will be included in large language models, you know, we, we see huge potential here. But there are also uh, uh, other areas where AI could potentially help. One, for example, is, you know, COP28 itself is a negotiation question. It's, uh, it's a diplomatic exercise. Large language models can help to bring in some impartiality into those negotiations and maybe drive consensus a little bit quicker. In our area for investors, we see the biggest potential and we've just run a big hackathon together with the best AI engineers from Google, where we've looked at all of the opportunities um, that we would have in the climate and AI space. And I think we do see the biggest opportunity in uh, data extraction and data processing. Uh, this is basically what large language models were built for, you know, reading massive amounts of documents and summarizing them in some kind of way and interpreting them. I don't think, you know, it is the, we, we cannot rely, and this is a classical, I think, finding in climate, we cannot sit back now and rely on some magical aspect, uh, you know, of innovation to solve the climate crisis. We still have five central sectors to decarbonize, and that is going to come from uh, a wide, wide variety of actions. There's an interaction here between the macroeconomy, between the geopolitical uh, concerns that Rena was just talking about, 
and uh, between things like climate negotiations, which are ultimately are, are global attempts to solve global scale problems. For a second, though, I'm going to restrict our focus to be a little bit more micro and investment focused again. One of the huge trends that we saw in 2023 was the expansion of private credit. Over the last 10 or 15 years, we've, we've all heard a lot and witnessed the rise of private equity sort of behemoths in the asset management sector. But last year was really a year when we heard more and more about private credit. Afsana, can you tell us a little bit about what this asset class is and why it seems to be so hot right now? Sure. Private credit, basically, it's, it's one of the oldest asset classes in the world, but then its return to the modern kind of asset allocation conversation was accelerated post-financial crisis when the tighter regulatory environment around bank suggested that central banks and the regulators are hoping that the banks turn back into the conduit of this distributing credit into economy as opposed to taking risk on providing credit facilities to riskier elements of the economy and corporate. The asset clause offers perhaps uh, one of the main features is that it offers a pretty attractive uh, risk return profile because in contrast to public credit market where the uh, coupon payments and the and the rates are quite fixed at the at the type of issuance at the time of issuance, this asset class has the uh, because of the nature of the most of the contracts you have got the floating rate that in an environment when the rates are going higher. It, uh, it has higher return for investors to start with. And also, even in a normal circumstances, in a lower rate um, circum in a lower rate environment, it was an asset class that given the spread that it was offering over the public, it was attractive for investors for diversification purposes. It has presented low volatility. Main reason being that the defaults can be managed because the whole relationship is one-to-one. -one. The investor, the, the lender and the borrowers have a tighter relationship than the general relationship that can be in a broader sense like banking and others. So the um, so the volatility in the sector has been lower. The defaults have been quite comparable with the public sector and, and specifically with broader syndicated loans, which is the benchmark that we are looking at them usually. So the asset clause had, had pretty reasonable risk and return profile before the current part of increasing the rate. And in the last two years, when the rates have gone up, the, uh, the, the expected return of the asset class made it even more attractive for a larger group of investors. So what we have seen is that uh, a kind of tendency for um, a larger group of investors, is, uh, institutional investors, to reallocate in their private asset allocation from equities, private equities, into private credit. So there's two precipitating factors, one longer term factor kind of post 2008 pushing banks out of this space and one more recent factor, which is the rise in rates, I guess. And yeah. I guess the question going into 2024 from a sort of expected returns perspective is in some sense, perhaps what's made What's made private credit attractive in the last year or so in that it doesn't have lots of duration. In other words, it doesn't mechanically lose value when interest rates fall. Exactly. Might also, I guess, potentially be its undoing because uh, just like if you're a home if you're a home borrower and you face significantly increased payments on your home, at some point some home borrowers might fail to make the payments. 
So there must be a bit of a balance there, is there, between uh, the, the lack of interest rate risk but some of that getting passed through into default risk. It's an untested asset class. We know that uh, based on the research that interest rate takes between two years to 18 months to impact the real economy. We are right at that point that the corporates now, um, they, the cash reserves might have been uh, uh, depleted and that they are in the circumstances that now serving their debt now becomes more and more crucial. Interest rates haven't come down or haven't stabilized to the level that the shock being behind them. So the shock is actually still ahead of this company. This is one side of the story that because higher interest rates, there is expectation to see perhaps more default going into next year and the year after. The other side of the story is that when we look at the uh, dry power of the private creditors, uh, basically private credit sector, and we look at the um, at the ways that they can manage and restructure, we can one thing that we would expect to see is that some of this default, so that the current high interest rate might not translate into one-to-one into defa- increasing defaults rate because a lot of these defaults can be replaced by restructuring extended loans and extended time. It certainly impacts the, the return of the asset class, but it might not necessarily result in higher increase in the, in the default. Plus, we would have similar dynamic with, again, the comparable asset class, comparable asset group, which is a syndicated loans, uh, the loose syndicated terms, because we were most of them were, were syndicated at a more benign environment, lower rate environment, uh, and the competition there resulted in a lot of loans to a, to a leverage sectors or lower quality. So there is a chance that what we see is that the combination of higher power of, of uh, private credit sector to restructure and the loose terms of the syndicates part. We, we, what we might see is that rather than increase of the default in private credit versus the other public side, we might see them just stay hand in hand, carry on hand in hand, as we have seen almost since 2018. I see. Now, it's fascinating, I think, and, and some of our listeners may not fully realize just how dominant private asset managers have become in terms of revenues to the asset management sector. And in fact, if you look at the sort of top asset managers by market cap in the world, um, almost all of them really are actually alternative asset. what we might in, in the past have called alternative asset managers, managers of, of private assets in one form or another. So this is clearly already a very important asset class, but I think it's fair to say that we see both more demand from the private asset managers to, to manage more money and uh, significant interest from institutional investors to to give them more money to manage, and I think we see that at both ends of the of the sort of spectrum. On the one hand, we see many of the biggest and most sophisticated pension funds in the world investing heavily in this area, and on the other hand, we see large wealth managers increasingly looking to to put their clients in new forms of vehicles that access some of these assets. Rena, when you talk to both the largest asset owners in the world and the large wealth managers, what are the what are the sorts of questions they're asking about the these types of assets which would enable them to make further investments in private assets? And what are their concerns about doing so? 
Yeah, actually, I think if I were to, you know, generalize or summarize, I think the biggest question is, how can I get transparency into what I'm doing? Um, in the, the, the transparency that public markets provide is um, obviously unparalleled, but the opportunity set that public markets provide is obviously limited. And for various reasons, whether you think about those investing in China are thinking about public markets and private markets, you know, a key area also that is coming up a lot from uh, clients, uh, both on the wealth side and also on the sophisticated uh, uh, institutional investor side is about um, climate implications for private assets, right? So one of the things that Oliver mentioned, um, you know, the key takeaways of COP28 coming out of Dubai was that investors are increasingly prioritizing financing the energy transition rather than focusing just on portfolio level carbonization or decarbonization. Now, regardless of the objective, I think one thing is becoming clear is that investors are recognizing that there are opportunities associated with this transition. And this transition is going to be across all sectors and industries instead of just a handful of companies. So whether it's identifying the straight-up disruptors like clean tech or identifying the leaders, right, of energy transition, public markets remain a very small part of the investment process and the investment universe. Now, one other thing that is coming up a lot is investors are actually excited about private equity going forward and the private asset class in general. And that is actually not necessarily because of uh, falling rates in 2024 or they have more opportunities. I think it goes back to our uh, you know, previous point that everything is interrelated, that AI will be key in shaping the private asset industry going forward. Now, there was a recent survey done of 1,200 CEOs around the world who said essentially 7 out of 10 said that they recognize that companies must move forward with AI. And private equity firms are right there in the transformation. If you think about due diligence, if you think about reporting, it's going to become massively efficient and a much more scalable way of doing things as AI disrupts this, right? So I think, you know, there's a macro environment clearly that we've focused on, but there's so many structural changes that really can provide pockets of opportunities in this alternative asset class. And I think investors are excited to explore that as well. And Reina, there must be parallel opportunities, both in terms of transparency and in terms of some of the data gathering that uh, Oliver was talking about earlier. If we think about significant investments in real assets and real estate as well, right, which is traditionally also a, a bespoke market that suffers from lack of transparency. Yeah, absolutely. I think you know the biggest challenge in the real assets um, landscape has just been that uh, you know. Buyers and sellers have not been able to agree in terms of what the value of a property is. There have been decline in transaction volumes, and that has led to an increase in liquidity. So essentially, you know, the biggest question investors are right now trying to find out or address is which loans are potentially at risk. And I think you know, one simple assessment that we do at our end is really look at loan-to-value ratios. And if you look at that across different industries, across different spectrums, you clearly see that offices are particularly at risk. Around 80% of office loans are currently estimated to have LTVs of uh, above 60%, potentially facing refinancing difficulty if maturity happens fairly quickly. So essentially what investors are looking at is transparency metrics across the board to evaluate what happens in 2024 as you find a floor in pricing 
as buyers and sellers come together to agree to property values and start closing more deals. Thanks, Trina. Another asset class then that um, is centrally dependent in the short run on changes in interest rates and in the long run on changes in market structure and transparency. We could spend lots of time here, but um, need to zoom out again. Uh, we started this podcast today by talking about some ways in which 2023 was a big surprise in the macroeconomy, and very largely that was a positive surprise. But Oliver, I'm not sure we can quite say the same about some of the surprises that we witnessed in climate in the world in 2023, can we? 2023, in terms of climate, was a really wild year in terms of heat statistics. 2023 has now replaced 2016 as the warmest calendar year on record in average. So it was kind of expected um, because we were shifting from a kind of a cold ocean current La Nina process to a warm ocean current uh, process called El Nino. But the difference between the 2016 and 2023 record is 0.17 degrees. And while that sounds really small, you know, if you go out in the morning uh, and, you know, there's a difference in temperature of 0.17 degrees, you're not going to notice. But in terms of total energy, this means every second on every place on Earth, you know, was this 0.17 degrees hotter. And, you know, that isn't distributed equally across the planet. So that that is a really large gap. It is so large that climate scientists in general don't really understand where that gap comes from. Uh, we need to rewrite the books on ocean currents and the interchange between ocean temperature and air temperature to even explain that. That's how wild the record is. The average temperature on Earth uh, compared to pre-industrial times where it was pretty constant uh, was about 1.4 to 1.5 degrees, depending on the statistic that you use, hotter. We're kind of seeing that we're slowly, slowly hitting that important 1.5 degree ceiling, uh, you know, that climate scientists have identified as a absolutely must keep within those limits um, warming in order to avoid the, the most extreme consequences of climate change. I'm going to explain a little bit why this record is so important also for investors. First of all, heat within the spectrum of all of the extreme weather events is the most costly extreme weather effect. And the reason is because it touches every sector, it does have a wide implication on uh, business continuity and business interruption. And also heat waves have a gigantic geographical extent. You know, while tropical cyclones and, and, and fluvial floods, for example, you know, usually produce images, you know, that portray a, a big sense of uh, destruction and, and interruption, heat waves are much more worse because they're really wide. Second of all, climate scientists have, have found out that this heat in 2023 was expected because of this El Nino effect that I talked about. Climate scientists actually found out it had almost no effect on the outcome because we had a little bit of La Nina in the beginning of the year, some El Nino developing in the end of the year, and that canceled each other out. So this El Nino is now progressing, and we can expect for 2024 to maybe even be a hotter year. You know, you wouldn't think that when you're at a record that there is a large chance for another record, but... 
There is. And the third one is maybe more in principle. My general thesis is that climate is a story of underestimation. And currently, you know, research shows that the interest in climate is slowly declining. You know, we've had uh, this issue in the public um, presence for maybe 10, 15 years now, depending on how you count. And we totally understand, you know, you can't worry about climate change every single year. But I think there's a false sense of, uh, you know, kind of letting the issue go. Um, and uh, climate has been a story of underestimation in the good and the bad. You know, the bad meaning, you know, these kinds of effects and the rise of emissions, but also the good. Um, you know, we talked previously also on this podcast about the rapid growth of renewable energy. And I think this kind of underestimation trend is something that is very worthwhile looking at when you're an investor. Wow. So that's that's a pretty overwhelming set of facts, Oliver. And I think this th this understatement bias, we might almost call it, that you're pointing to, you and I were talking about this the other day, and, and, and perhaps it partly comes down to the need that scientists have in scientific discourse to to present their findings in what they deem to be a conservative fashion. Um, maybe it's even a, an element of, of sort of a political choice to sort of avoid really presenting an alarmist sort of picture. But the description that you're giving us, based on the hard facts which we experienced around the world last year, is pretty much telling me that this is almost literally now a hair on fire moment for climate change. Yeah. Here's a... <laughs> Here, here's an ironic fact. If you look at, uh, you know, all of the different climate indices that um, we have at MSCI and at that performance in the year 2023, you can really see that, you know, in general, I think it's fair to say uh, that um, those uh, investors who invested in kind of some climate style, if you want to call it that, did produce some outperformance in general um, in 2023. That outperformance is somewhere in between uh, like a percent and maybe 5%. So it's it's a very considerable outperformance. But the ironic thing that I wanted to point out is that the outperformance was by far the largest in the US where the, I guess, the debate about ESG and climate style uh, investing is the strongest, whereas in the emerging markets, where you would think that, uh, you know, it's so much easier to replace a environmentally harming technology with a more emissions-friendly technology, you know, that picture is much, much more mixed. And it kind of reflects the reality of the need for uh, financing um, in emerging markets for them to leapfrog, uh, you know, to a to net zero energy grid. So the world really is heating up. You, you said slowly, slowly, but but it's probably more accurate to say quickly, quickly. What did we decide to do about it at COP? Does that have any chance of setting us on the right track? Uh, COP28 was the uh, 28th um, United Nations Climate Change Conference. I think the, the, the biggest debate obviously was about the location in the Middle East in an oil-producing country and the presidency, uh, the presidency uh, of COP28 being you know, the head of the national oil company. The Negotiations themselves were really a, a thriller. Um, they were very close to uh, falling apart. 
But in the end, uh, the uh, conference uh, agreed on what is now known the UAE consensus. And I think the, the two most important takeaways are the agreement to triple uh, renewable energy by 2030 and to shift away from fossil fuels. And, uh, you know, uh, I, I think this, this might, might sound a little bit lame if you look at any kind of decarbonization scenario that's needed. This is kind of a given. But given the history of the political uh, negotiations, uh, this, is, this is a big step forward. And I think uh, there are two more underlying kind of uh, insights which are very important. One is the, UA, uh, the, the UN process is still intact. Um, I think the biggest risk that we have is that we don't have an international forum where uh, the global community can, can agree on decarbonization uh, strategies. And the second one is that actually putting an oil producing state into the driving seat and uh, making sure uh, that that state delivers on progress on the Paris Agreement um, and the development of the Paris Agreement was actually a genius idea. It works. So, uh, you know, I think we can look forward to um, uh, COP29, the next uh, climate change conference, uh, to actually happen in an oil producing state uh, again in Azerbaijan. Uh, people will meet in uh, Baku. It might not be uh, as big um, and, and, and as prominent uh, as in Dubai, uh, but I think we can look forward to COP29 and see, hopefully, um, some details in implementing that decarbonization that is necessary. Thank you very much, everyone. It's been fascinating in this conversation with you, Oliver, that we've touched on so many of the threads which we've previously touched on in this conversation. So in order for us to make progress on this global challenge of climate change, we desperately need to solve the geopolitical problems that Rayner was talking about. We desperately need to mobilize capital, which after all is the point of financial markets and a key way in which capital is going to be mobilized towards climate is both through private equity along the lines Rayner was talking about and through private credit along the lines that Asano is talking about. And of course, in addition to solving geopolitical problems, uh, technological solutions will also play a big role in shifting, if we get there, uh, towards a better climate path. So I just want to finish, though, by by sort of reminding our listeners of how these long-term concerns can, can really be derailed by short-term events. So I think that the performance of climate indexes that you were talking about, Oliver, was all the more remarkable, really, given the ongoing troubled nature of geopolitics that we see not only in Russia and Ukraine, but also uh, towards the end of the year, uh, tragically in the Middle East, and of course, the ongoing tensions between the US and China. Uh, and any of these short-term concerns, alas, can, can divert us from uh, the longer-term structural changes which have to happen in the economy. So going into 2024, we're priced for it all to go right in the macro economy, and hopefully we can get on with what matters. But in preparing this conversation, Afsane reminded me that of the last uh, nine landings, so to speak, in the US economy since 1965, seven of them ended up being hard. So statistically, what we're pricing for is, uh, is about a 22% success rate. Uh, so listeners, um, I'll leave you with the thought that uh, we can all hope that markets have it right and we're in for that one in four successful soft landing. That's all for this week. Our thanks to Ashley, Afsana, 
Raina, and Oliver, and of course, to all of you for listening. For more insights from Ashley and team, visit the In Focus page at msci.com. As for Joe and I, well, we'll be back with fresh episodes every two weeks this year. We have a big year planned, and we hope you'll join us. If you like what you hear, be sure to follow the program or leave a review. We'd honestly love to hear from you. Until next time, I'm your host, Adam Bass, and this is MSCI Perspectives. Stay safe, everyone.